We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. I'm Caitlin Chin, your guest host for today's This Does Not Compute podcast, taking over for Jim Lewis. I'm joined today by Zach Myers, a senior research fellow at the Center for European Reform. Zach is an expert in competition policy and economic regulation, especially as it relates to digital platforms. So Zach, thank you for being here today. Well, it's nice to be here, Caitlin. Thanks for inviting me. First of all, Zach, I'd love to start with some quick introductions. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you become interested in competition policy and digital platforms? And could you describe some of your recent work for us? Yeah, sure. So um, as, you, as you said, I'm a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform. As you can probably hear from my voice, I'm Australian. And so I spent a couple of years in Melbourne as a competition lawyer, working mostly in the telecommunications space. And then I spent a little bit of time in the US working on general corporate law before moving to London. And my practice in London was kind of expanded from telecoms to a whole range of other regulated industries like energy and payment systems and airports, for example. And so that's kind of, that made me really interested in like the underlying competition policy questions which in many sectors are getting more and more acute over time and so last year i made the jump into the think space world and it's really been a fascinating time uh, if you're interested in digital and competition the pace of legislation and the pace of antitrust enforcement has kind of dramatically increased in the last couple of years and you know there's a lot of really chunky questions to be answered and yeah, it'll be interesting to see the next couple of years when different jurisdictions come up with their own solutions to those problems. Absolutely. I think chunky questions is a good way to put it. Just thinking back to everything you've, you've described, competition issues with airlines and telecom, it is kind of wild what a difference a few years make. Um, it definitely sounds like it's been a busy couple of years to be an antitrust attorney or a think tank researcher. But I'd love to just dive into some of the topics that are currently ongoing in the EU. Recently, the European Commission has initiated investigations against Amazon, Google, Meta, and Apple, highlighting a whole lot of different issues. So I was just wondering if you could describe some of these complaints for us. What is your take on recent legal developments in the European Union and their potential impact on the digital market? Sure. So it's getting extremely difficult to keep track of all of the investigations and cases against uh, mostly American big tech companies in, in Europe. And uh, all the ones that you mentioned are getting investigated for one reason or another. Uh, so the, the biggest completed cases in recent years have been ones against Google. So there was the Google Shopping case in 2017, the Android case in 2018, and AdSense in 2019. And all of those are kind of going through the appeals process now. So Apple's uh, recently had charges brought against it for the way it maintains control over the payment funds on iPhones, on kind of app store payment policies, and on ebooks and music streaming services having to use Apple Pay. Google's been getting investigated for 
the way it's ad tech or digital advertising platforms work, there's a whole variety of concerns about giving other players access to data and the way it bundles services together. Meta is in being investigated for how it ties Facebook marketplace to the Facebook social media platform. And then Amazon's getting investigated for how it uses sellers data um, and what sort of sellers get selected in the buy box uh, when you purchase something on Amazon. And then how it preferences its own goods and third parties to use its logistics service. And you know that is by no means a comprehensive view of everything that the European Commission or national regulators are looking at. There's a whole range of other conduct as well. And um, so I think you asked about like the general trends and, and kind of what can we learn from this. And I would say the first obvious point is that tech is taking up a much bigger focus for regulators than it did in the past. I think for many years there was a sense from competition regulators that this is a really innovative space. There's you know lots of exciting business models happening. A lot of them are really disruptive and bringing a lot of new benefits to consumers. And we should just kind of leave it alone and wait to see how things pan out before taking action that could hinder innovation. And I think the trend has definitely moved away from regulators just leaving things alone. And you know, they're, they're now prepared to, to take those risks in relation to innovation. The second lesson I think is that a lot of these investigations are focusing on what's called self-preferencing. And so this is the idea that you have a big tech company, you know, they have an ecosystem of services and those services, you know, connecting really easily to each other. So the consumer has this kind of seamless experience, but from a competition perspective, you're concerned, well, it's not easy to just change out one of those services for a third party service. And so you can end up with consumers being stuck within the one ecosystem and, and not being able to easily switch around. Uh, so for example, you know, Apple runs an app store and it also provides apps through it in competition with third party developers. And Amazon runs its marketplace, but it's also a seller on the marketplace, for example. And so like in most industries, you look at this type of integration and you think, you know, it creates efficiencies, it makes life really easy for consumers, and in general, it's not really harmful for competition. And so I think that as long as consumers have good choices, and it's not clear that big tech firms want to exclude others. And so, for example, if you look at what Amazon's business model is, it's pretty clear that they would want to keep third-party sellers on board because it creates kind of a more vibrant marketplace then you can see that these concerns are not justified but it's not clear to me that regulators are always looking that closely at whether or not self-preferencing is justified or not in a particular cases they're more worried about the exclusion of competitors rather than what's good for consumers so in general do you think self-preferencing is justified for example if amazon promotes its Amazon basics products over those of mm -hmm. third party competitors, or if Google has Google shopping at the top of its home site above other comparable shopping services. Do you think that this is an environment where healthy competition can thrive? Well, I think it's hard to say as a general rule, whether or not it's harmful or not. I think it's probably right to have as a starting point, the view that it's not harmful because we see this in all different types of sectors. And a lot of the time it's kind of responsive to what consumers want. And, you know, you, you would just look at how successful Apple's been and they have the most tightly integrated services of kind of any big tech firm and, you know, consumers just love it and they're prepared to pay a premium for that. Cool is if you've got a provider who's got like a really, really high market share and they're trying to tie their service to try a service that's not doing so well to give that service an artificial advantage. And you're doing it in a way that really means that no one else can compete with them then I think it's more likely to be a problem. And so if you look at, if you think about the way that if you buy an iPhone, the only way you can get apps is through the app store. 
I think it's right for regulators to look a bit more closely at that compared to say, you know, Amazon advantaging its Amazon basics products, which are very often the, the cheapest that are available in the market. I do think that the self-preferencing debate is one of the most interesting aspects of the competition policy um, environment at the moment, just because I do hear this argument a lot coming from industry or companies like Apple or Google that, you know, consumers like our products, consumers like using Google Maps or the pre-installed apps on their iPhones. And on the other hand, we also hear the argument that self-preferencing is just inherently unfair if large tech companies with massive amounts of users are able to sort of preference or dictate what apps and services their users use. And in the United States, there's a bill called the American Innovation and Online Choice Act that's gaining a lot of traction in the House and Senate. And it's, and I guess we'll, time will tell what will happen with the bill. But it's, but we've also seen in the EU, the European Parliament has recently approved the Digital Markets Act, which would target self-preferencing and other behaviors. So now, Zach, are there provisions of the Digital Markets Act, in your view, that will benefit consumers in competition? Or are there provisions that you think might pose harm or unintended consequences? Yeah, I, I think there's both. On self-preferencing in particular, it's worth noting that the Digital Markets Act doesn't ban all types of self-preferencing upfront, which is kind of a, a common misconception. So there's a provision that relates to kind of when you're ranking services. So like if you think about Google search results, then it wouldn't be allowed to unjustifiably put its own services first if it was clear that consumers wanted something else. But it, there's not a ban on all types of advantaging of a service. So for example, you, at the very least, it's unclear whether it would really ban Google from having you know, Gmail as, a, as an option in the top of a website, of another Google website, for example, because then you're not really ranking different mail, mail services. So, so I think the Digital Markets Act, um, I, I'm not familiar with the US legislation, but I suspect the Digital Markets Act might be a little bit more generous to tech firms than the US legislation. Uh, just so to go back to your broader question, which is, are there benefits to consumers and are there disadvantages to consumers? I think two starting points. Firstly, that most people do think that there's at least some legitimate concerns about competition in the digital sector, even though I think there's a lot of room for disagreement about where those concerns are and how legitimate they are and whether they're true of all tech firms in the same way. And secondly, I think there's a real risk of stifling innovation or causing consumer harm for the reasons that we've talked about. And we definitely don't want to put that at risk. And that's especially true when you see that these tech firms are investing in things like the metaverse, which are, you know, huge bets for these companies. Like there's no guarantee that they will be the winners out of the innovation that they're investing in. So I think that when it comes to the DMA, there's a combination of some rules that will benefit consumers, some rules that will cause some short-term harm that could unlock some gain in the long term by increasing competition in the long run. And thirdly, some rules that will harm consumers and probably won't achieve very much. So as an example of one, there are rules in the DMA which will lower prices and give consumers choices that they don't currently have or subject platforms to more competitive pressure. So for example, I think it would be a good thing if consumers had different choices for how they pay for apps or app content. And at the moment, Apple and Google insist that if you want to buy an app through the app store, there's only one way to do that. And it involves, in a lot of cases, paying commission to Apple or Google. And so if we can create a bit more competitive tension there, I think we could lead to lower prices, unlikely to cause a lot of consumer detriment. Um, as an example of the second group, which is short-term harm, long-term gain, I think that this comes back to the question about self-preferencing. 
when you force services not to be as well integrated, you can create services that are more fiddly to use, less personalized, less convenient. And that might make it easier for small firms to come in and compete. And that could increase innovation in the long run in some cases. But the question for me is, you know, exactly what cases is that going to happen and do the benefits outweigh the gains in the long run? And as an example of three, which is a rule that are just going to harm consumers, I think that at the last minute, the lawmakers in Europe agreed to make instant messaging services interoperable, which means that you could use WhatsApp to talk to a friend on iMessage, as an example. And um, look, I've got some really good friends who are avid advocates of interoperability in this context. So I, I don't, uh, you know, I say this with some hesitation, but I'm just not really sure that the benefits are going to be anywhere near as substantial as they say. And the reason for that is that most messaging services are free. It's very easy for consumers to use multiple services at the same time. You know, we've all got WhatsApp and iMessage and Facebook Messenger on our phones at the same time. So it's not as if it's difficult to, to switch around if you don't like one of them. And there's not really any kind of lock-in factor. So it's not as if you invest a lot in one messaging service and then will never want to use anything else again. So, so I think in that case, interoperability is likely to be quite costly, quite complex, and you know, not necessarily going to create a lot of benefits in terms of competition. When you said costly, are you, do you mean that interoperability might pose in a, harms innovation, or are you thinking that it could also potentially create privacy or security concerns? This is something that has also come up in US legislation. Yeah, I'm not personally convinced about the privacy and security concerns. Um, the main concern has been about end-to-end -end encryption and this idea that interoperability would break it. I, I think from a technical perspective, there's a couple of different standards for end-to-end -end encryption. And as long as a new messaging service that wanted to interoperate with something like iMessage adopted the same inter interoperability standard, you wouldn't necessarily have to break end-to-end -end encryption. But I do agree with you that it could harm innovation. And that's simply because you're going to have to require some degree of standardization when you interoperate. And that necessarily means that these uh, messaging services won't be completely free to change their service if, if consumers, if they want to experiment or if it seems like consumers might want something different than what the interoperability standard requires. And, and of course, it's going to be costly because, you know, it's setting in place the, the systems to allow anyone to connect to you and exchange messages with you. I mean, we know this from telecoms, like even basic interoperability gets quite complicated quite quickly. This innovation argument is really interesting just because we hear it so often, both in the EU and also the US. How might competition legislation affect the possibility not only for large gatekeepers to innovate, but also for smaller companies or potential startups? And it sounds like what I'm hearing is that these new rules could potentially decrease innovation in some ways while also opening up the possibility of smaller companies to compete more or innovate in other ways. Is, is that, am I, am I understanding that correctly from your view? Yeah, I think that's right. And you sound a bit uncertain. And I think, you know, the truth is tech markets are quite unpredictable. And the idea of innovation is that you don't exactly know what's going to happen. So I do think there is a, a lot of uncertainty about how this is all going to to pan out. But I do think, you know, there probably is some scope to increase innovation. Like a lot of the tech firms have quite high profit margins, which suggests that if they were subjected to more pressure to, you know, to keep innovating, that they would spend more on, 
on you know finding new ways to keep consumers attracted to the services and so you know look i don't think that the success of the digital markets act should be based on have the market shares of the big tech companies decreased over time because in a lot of cases i don't think that's very likely and that's for good reason which is they are innovative we should be thinking more about has it have we increased the pace of innovation either by the big tech firms or by smaller tech players who can now come in and find different ways to upset the established players. I definitely agree that it's a little bit hard to predict the sub certainty at the moment. I know all sides have cited innovation at some point as reasons for either to pass or not pass competition legislation. But in general, in both the EU and the US, it definitely seems like things are moving toward greater regulation for digital markets. And Zach, I know in the past you've noted that there's been somewhat of a shift in sentiment within the United States, where in the past US politicians had a more negative view of EU antitrust enforcement against large tech US tech companies. And now they appear to be warming to additional action. So why is this the case? What are some factors that have led to this change in attitude? Yeah, I mean, as a observer from London, what I see is that I think there's been an observation in the US that many of the large tech firms have been growing in their economic success, but also that they've obtained an increasing amount of social importance. So for example, in the way that content moderation decisions on social media can impact politics, for example. And some of the platforms have found it very difficult not to be shunned by both sides of politics. So you've got Democrats who think that the platforms are too right-leaning, and then you've got Republicans who are incensed by the decisions to ban Trump, for example. And so I think some of the support for more antitrust action in the US seems to confuse economic and social power, and there's just this idea that we just need to clamp down. And, and so that's, I think that is one driving factor. But then also I think academic and regulators' consensus seems to have changed quite rapidly too. So the earlier US approach seemed pretty reasonable when big tech firms had only been in place for a couple of years. And so it's very easy to imagine that Google or Apple could have gone the same way as AltaVista or MySpace or ICQ, um, which most young people these days have never heard of. But I think, you know, it does seem right now that we've had about a decade where many of the big tech firms who were around 10 years ago are, are the same ones and are just as successful to have a think about, you know, are some of these firms becoming a bit more entrenched? Is there something that we should do to shake things up? But I think we do need to be more nuanced, I think, and to think that some of them are probably more vulnerable than others. And also we don't necessarily want to go too far because, you know, they do have massive R&D budgets that we don't want to upset by taking action that would cause them to, um, you know, to bunker down on their existing business models. Mm -hmm. that's that's a really interesting point i want to go back to content moderation which you mentioned just because it does seem like the shift could be part of a broader tech lash and some mm -hmm. may say that the 2016 elections was a turning point in the united states where we saw tech contribute to political polarization and raise concerns over data collection and targeted advertisements more recently, we've seen the Facebook papers, which raise concerns over how social media could contribute to, for example, mental health issues for minors. So I'd like to just talk about that content moderation.
immigration angle a little bit. In the United States, policymakers are still largely divided over how to reform Section 230 or platform liability for content. But on the other hand, the EU has developed the Digital Services Act framework along with the Digital Markets Act. And I know that you've also done some work on the DSA. So could you just tell us a little bit more about the Digital Services Act? In your view, does it take the right approach to content moderation? I don't think many people would describe the Digital Services Act as light touch. It will require quite a lot more of them than what EU laws have provided for in the past. Uh, but it's quite focused on illegal content rather than the UK approach, which we can talk about separately which goes a bit beyond that. And so this, the sorts of things that requires our kind of obligations to trace business units, users on online marketplaces, processes to have more transparency and the ability to, for users to challenge content moderation decisions, more transparency about recommender systems and algorithms, putting in place systems to assess and mitigate the sort of social risks that we talked about, things like disinformation online. And then there are some safeguards on personalized advertising for, for children. So I think that in general, the DSA, uh, that's the acronym for the Digital Services Act, tends to take a pretty reasonable approach in my view. So I, I don't think it's politically plausible to think that, you know, we can just keep going on in the same way that social media platforms have in the past. There's just been too much criticism of the decisions that they make and this idea that they might be influencing the political debate through through decisions that don't have very much transparency or accountability. But I think that, you know, what's important is, you know, firstly, we have to take into account the need for competition in social media. And so we don't want to impose, you know, really heavy onerous rules on platforms, especially smaller mm -hmm. platforms that might, you know, one day compete with Facebook, for example. And secondly, obviously we have to protect freedom of expression. I know that has a very different context in the US than it does in the EU and in the UK. But, you know, undoubtedly it's you know, of fundamental importance. And so we don't want to end up with regimes that kind of force platforms to take down content unless it is actually illegal. Freedom of expression definitely has come up a lot in the United States, not only in the content moderation debate, but I would also add perhaps in the privacy debate or even the antitrust debate. For example, if when we talk about data, like who does data belong to, who can share it, who can, you know, it, it just, it's, it's really interesting just seeing the differences in different frameworks. I do want to move over to the United Kingdom. I know you're based in London and the UK's competition and market authority has also been pretty active lately. Um, it's directed attention toward digital markets by releasing codes of conduct on the relationship between platforms and publishers. It's also investigated large tech companies and established a new digital markets unit to specifically do that. So in your view, just what are some of the most interesting developments coming out of the UK? Yeah, so I mean, it's a really interesting time, as you say. For a couple of years now, the government has said that they're going to introduce kind of a new digital competition regime. And it looks quite different to the EU approach and to the US approach, at least based on some of the bills that I've seen in Washington. But so the idea of the, the UK model is that you will be able to design as a regulator these kind of codes of conduct for really big strategically important firms. And they wouldn't have kind of hard and fast rules, but they'd have principles that the big tech platforms need to comply with to ensure that they're treating users and businesses that rely on them fairly and predictably. 
And then the regulator would also have the power to create kind of bespoke rules for each firm if uh, there was a scene to be kind of a, a need to address specific problems relating to competition. And so you could, for example, impose an interoperability requirement. But, but this is very different because the EU approach, and I think some of the US bills too, although you probably know more about this than I do, they have rules that are kind of upfront in, in the legislation that apply to different firms that are, have models that are you know, radically different from each other. And they don't have a lot of flexibility. And I, and I think a lot of these rules are not very well targeted at the problems that they're trying to solve. So in principle, I think I'm excited about the UK approach. It, it could be interesting. And at the very least, I think it will have a, it'll be good to see kind of which is more successful over time. But the problem is that the, as you probably know, the UK government is in a bit of a, a mess right now with uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson stepping down and there not being a new Prime Minister for a number of, yeah. number of weeks or months. And the government has said that they don't have time this year to introduce the bill that would create this new competition regime. So we don't really know when yeah. that's going to happen, which is, I guess, uh, I think quite unfortunate because it would be good for the UK to have a regime in place before or at the same time as the Digital Markets Act comes into effect. So yeah. there can be a bit of alignment. I think that would be good for the tech companies because to the extent you can sensibly align the rules, it's easier to comply. And it, you know, even for small businesses, having a single set of rules for the UK and the EU makes, makes sense. But as you say, in the meantime, the regulator is using their existing powers to do a variety of different things. And they've been surprisingly aggressive. So I don't know whether you've heard of the Facebook Giphy. Could you tell us what that is? Yeah, so um, <laughs> Giphy is a small firm that offers animated GIFs that you can include in like messages and and on social media, and and it didn't have a business in the UK that was properly commercialised, and in fact, it only had a kind of a relatively small commercialised business in the US, and so it was kind of surprising that you had a UK merger authority that was trying to try and in fact did block block this, this acquisition. And it was the first acquisition by any big tech company that I'm aware of around the world that had ever been, been blocked. And so, you know, this has been hugely controversial, but the, but the regulator's decision was recently upheld in, in court. So or, in, or at a tri tribunal on appeal. So th that's probably a, a sign of things to come, but it shows that if other merger regulators look at businesses that or acquisitions, you know, even when there's not very, very tight a connection to their own jurisdiction, you know, life's going to get very tough for big tech firms looking to, looking to acquire smaller firms. You know, there's also been, as you say, a number of investigations against businesses like Google and Meta, and the CMA has just started what's called a market investigation process in two kind of quite niche areas. One is cloud gaming on iPhones. And the other is on the limitations that Apple imposes on the type of browser engines that are used. Like, so if you download a, a third-party browser like Firefox or uh, Chrome onto your iPhone, you have to use, that, that browser will still use the same underlying software as Safari does. And so the regulators concerned with that is kind of limiting innovation and in particular, making it harder for developers who want to run web apps, which are basically little apps that run through a website rather than going through the app store. So I think, you know, th that could be a really interesting way to create more, more competition and more competitive pressure on, on Apple without going down this route of 
allowing third party app stores, which I think poses more security risks and is likely to be a little more controversial. So yeah, so UK is a really interesting market doing some quite different things. Oh, that is interesting. First of all, I love those animating GIFs. <laughs> um, <laughs> <We> only, uh... <laughs> I'm not as familiar with the specific facts of this case, but I do know that there has been a lot of concerns about large tech companies purchasing smaller tech companies. And perhaps in this case, regulators are concerned that Giphy could become the next Instagram that Facebook buys. And I know that you mentioned there is some uncertainty about how legislation could apply to companies in very different markets like Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And that's something that's come up a lot in the United States as well. The American Innovation and Online Choice Act, along with several other bills in the House and Senate, would largely target these four companies and almost no others unless market conditions change. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's come up a lot. How can legislation target four companies with very different business models and in almost no other companies. And I know that's come up in the Digital Markets Act as well, although I know the criteria for qualifying gatekeepers is a little bit different. Um, oh my, it's like, it's so ridiculous. They changed it so there would be one European and one Chinese firm, you know, purely to show that it wouldn't be anti-American. So you know, I don't know whether that's better, better or worse than just targeting a few, but it's, it's arbitrary anyway. <laughs> I also want to um, talk a little bit more about that. So I know at the close of the second Trading Technology Council meeting in May, EU and US leaders released a joint statement calling for a dialogue to find common ground and greater consistency on their approaches to digital markets. And I think in some areas, there may be possibility for alignment between the EU and the US. For example, some of the cases that you mentioned earlier with Google AdSense, Google Shopping, and the Apple Store payments, those are all very similar behaviors that US regulators are looking at as well. But there may be some challenges. For example, like we just mentioned, the controversy over which companies the US and the EU legislation should apply to because both of them largely target U.S. companies. So what is what is your take? Do you, do you think it's possible for the EU and U.S. to find common ground on competition enforcement? Yeah, so I think collaboration makes a huge amount of sense. And so even if the U.S. doesn't adopt all of the same rules as the EU does, and there's probably many good reasons for it not to in a lot of cases, at least where they're trying to deal with the same specific problems, I think it makes sense to work together as regulators and try to adopt at least roughly similar solutions. And I mean, there's three good reasons for that. One is it's better for the regulated tech companies to develop one set of changes for their business rather than trying to manage multiple different business models in different countries. And you know that way they'll still be able to enjoy their economies of scale, which have been legitimately achieved. And secondly, I think for the smaller tech companies who this legislation is really trying to benefit, you know, it's much better for them and they'll find it easier to grow and to go global if they're dealing with the same behavior from big tech companies, you know, wherever they do business. So for example, for big retailers who want to use Amazon or app developers who want access to app stores. And thirdly, I think it's much better for regulators uh, mm -hmm. because they're dealing with so many different potential problems across the whole tech sector that I think we're just finding that in a lot of these areas, there aren't the regulatory resources to be able to manage and identify and tackle the problems properly and comprehensively. 
And, you know, I know from my experience in the private sector that you, you'd really rather have regulators who have the resources to be able to consider all of the arguments carefully and do their job properly rather than kind of jump to these shortcut solutions, which often end up being worse in the long run. So, you know, so, so I definitely think that to the extent regulators can divide and conquer and piggyback off each other's work, that's probably going to be a good thing for everyone involved. I really hope so. I mean, the US and EU are such important trading partners. It would be great if the two jurisdictions could work together in some way, especially since both, at least in the United States, I'm not sure about the EU, but US regulators generally have very limited resources to prioritize enforcement actions. And just there is so much going on in the economy right now. That leads me to another question. So in the past, you've written about what you've called a Brussels effect. I was wondering, could you explain what this is and where are we seeing examples of this phenomenon around the world? Yeah, so the Brussels effect was coined by an academic, I think in relation to GDPR, which is the EU privacy law. And it's this idea that the EU can kind of export its regulations so that they either are adopted or they kind of apply de facto in other parts of the world. And there's several ways that this effect can operate. So one is where the EU is simply the first major jurisdiction to try to solve a global policy problem. And by putting in place a law first, it basically sets the agenda. And so even if other countries want to take a different approach, they'll often think about the EU as their starting point. And you can see that with how the UK has adopted its own version of the Digital Services Act, or sorry, it's planning to adopt a similar law, which is quite different, but you can see that, you know, they've worked from the basis of the Digital Services Act in, in doing so. The second way this effect operates is when the EU, when it becomes easier for other countries to adopt the same approach because of the way the EU law is structured. And if you look at GDPR, this is a good example. So if another country adopts similar privacy standards, the EU can then decide that that country offers equivalent protection. And then companies are free to transfer data or personal data of EU individuals to that, to that third country without having to include any additional safeguards because there's this deeming that when, it, when the information's in that other country, then it will still be protected. And so that makes it very attractive for other countries who are looking at privacy laws to try to adopt something that is reasonably similar to, to what's in the EU. And thirdly, EU laws can just become a de facto standard when, as I said before, when businesses just think that it's cheaper and easier to adopt the same business model, you know, wherever they operate around the world. And so if the EU law kind of provides the best possible protection or the highest standards, it can sometimes just be easier to roll those out. And so we might see this with competition reforms, for example. So if when the DMA is implemented, if it looks like consumers get a better deal in Europe, it might be easier for those tech companies to offer UK customers the same deal so that there's not a kind of political or consumer pressure from, from those in the UK pointing at you saying, why don't we get the same treatment? Uh, so, I mean, some people would disagree. I think that in some cases, the way that the EU is able to exploit the Brussels effect is because you've got a lot of different EU member states who all have kind of a very different political context. And when you are trying to negotiate to get the sort of standard that is able suitable for all those different countries, you know, often you end up with the sort of compromise that's then a good starting point for elsewhere in the world as well. Thank you. This has been a hugely informative conversation. I know I learned a lot about the DMA and other developments in the EU and UK. 
So my last question is, what developments are you watching ahead for, whether within or outside of the EU? Where should the rest of us keep our ear to the ground? Well, I mean, firstly, I think implementation of the Digital Markets Act is going to be extremely interesting. You, you mentioned regulatory resources, and there have been a lot of difficult discussions in Brussels about how many people are going to be needed and how complicated it's all going to be. And so I think that a lot of these rules are, you know, contrary to what the lawmakers thought, are going to be quite vague, and we don't actually know what tech companies are going to have to do to comply, and it's going to have to be some negotiations with uh, the regulator about you know what compliance actually looks like and whether that ends up being good for customers and and they love it or whether it's going to create a lot of pain for them is something that is going to be quite interesting and also is going to affect the appetite of other countries to adopt similar legislation like this in the future i think the other kind of longer term issue is obviously like the metaverse and kind of which of these problems are going to be important to, to the metaverse and how are a regular regulators going to to solve those um so i think you know all of the social media issues around content moderation online abuse all of those are going to be have to be tackled and in terms of competition i think we're hearing some really interesting things from tech firms about wanting to make sure that the metaverse is interoperable and the different services from different companies work together and you know, if I, I think that would be a really great thing to lock in at an early stage, so that so you know, we, when people start using the metaverse, you know, they have a variety of different choices, uh, even while firms are able to distinguish themselves. So yeah, so so I'm really looking forward to to policymakers thinking about you know what metaverse regulation looks like. Oh, that is interesting. I'll definitely keep my eye out on more metaverse developments and on the enforcement of the DMA and DSA and whether we'll see those potential benefits or challenges play out. It kind of reminds me of some of the questions surrounding the enforcement of the GDPR back in 2018, the various uncertainties of what certain provisions could look like. And on a final note, I was just thinking a little bit back to your comment earlier about Boris Johnson and how legislators have very limited capacities to deal with a whole bunch of issues. And I do feel like that is going on in the United States as well. Congress is grappling with so many different issues. I do feel like sometimes antitrust and content moderation and data protection efforts can get sidelined a little bit. But I hope that's not the case. I think that there is a lot of momentum behind big tech regulation this time around. So I have no doubt in my mind that we'll only continue to see more major antitrust developments in the US, UK, EU, and all around the world in the upcoming year. So thank you so much again, Zach, for all of your work on these important issues and for joining us today. Thanks so much. I learned a lot about the US uh, developments too. So yeah, very grateful for that and great to be with you today. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.